You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome, welcome to Fired Up, or right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show each week. Welcome, everybody. Glad to have you with us. So, as we continue to wind down through... Uh, the end of 2021, and, and as I said last week's show, uh, this week has been very taxing on all of us, you know, with the COVID and all of the other things going on, the economic problems, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, we're we're looking to the perhaps the joyousness of the holiday season, maybe to give us a little bit of a bright spot here as we finish up 2021. Uh, but as always in the show, we're going to take a look at what's going on in the political world uh, from a standpoint of how our political system is working for us or working against us. Uh, we'll get into that in a minute. But as always, we start off our show. We're going to uh, just check in and see where we are with our COVID-19 uh, pandemic. As of this week, we are at 50.8 million cases of the pandemic that have occurred in this country. Uh, 804,700 people have uh, died from the disease and 495,100,000 people have received uh, at least one dose of the uh, vaccine and 57.5% of adult Americans are actually fully vaccinated. So those figures uh, give us a good starting point for our conversation for this week. Um, first and foremost, you know, as, as those of you who listen to the show on a regular basis know, I put out the call for you know, all of you to make sure that uh, you get your vaccines, that you get you know, booster shots uh, as, as they're available to you, and that you do everything that you can to keep yourself, uh, your family, and your community uh, safe from the COVID-19. Uh, some of the, the news that we're hearing uh, coming out of uh, other countries like South Africa and uh, the United Kingdom, uh, where the COVID variant and the Omicron variant is a little more advanced than it is here, uh, one of the things they're seeing is that uh, even fully vaccinated people uh, are seeing breakthroughs of the Omicron variant. However, the vaccination or the vaccines are actually doing what they're supposed to do in helping to protect people. Um, there's actually an article that I saw, uh, it came out on the 16th, and it was, uh, it's from NBC News, and it's a report uh, that their uh, medical contributor, Dr. Vin Gupta, uh, said, and the article is entitled, uh, Fully Vaccinated People Are Going to Test Positive with Omicron. And in, in parentheses, this is our new normal. The article, which came out on the 16th of December, uh, starts off with, as the highly contagious Omicron variant quickly spreads across the country, a respiratory specialist says Americans should expect to see more breakthrough cases of COVID-19 in fully vaccinated people. And that's fine. Let me repeat that. And the doctor is saying, and that's fine. Speaking on the Today Show, Dr. Vin Gupta 
from the University of Washington said that they are forecasting that cases are going to rise in both vaccinated and unvaccinated people, but those with their shots are going to be protected against severe illness. We have to get comfortable with fully vaccinated folks testing positive, quoted uh, Dr. Gupta. That's going to be our new normal. Gupta told the Today Show host, quote, but people should not worry about that because the purpose of vaccines is not to prevent a positive test or a respiratory virus like Omicron, it's to keep you out of the hospital. And that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, so, you know, one, one of the things that I saw in a related article uh, is that we can expect to see uh, a, a doubling or even tripling of reported cases, uh, you know, week over week, month over month, uh, for at least the short-term foreseeable future due to the Omicron virus. However, as we we're just talking about here, the number of hospitalizations and correspondingly the number of deaths from COVID-19 are not expected to show a, a severe or drastic rise. Uh, going back to the article, Gupta explained that with respiratory viruses like COVID-19, or the flu, it's not possible to fully prevent infections, but vaccines keep them from becoming severe and leading to hospitalization or death. Uh, you know, the, the article, uh, as I said, is on NBCNews.com and goes into uh, a little bit more detail uh, talking about how for the unvaccinated, the next few months could be dire as Omicron spread. Uh, he's, he's calling and saying, myself and colleagues at hospitals across the country, we're expecting, frankly, 10,000 weekly deaths week over week, well into the beginning of March, he said. So this is going to be a very difficult three to four months ahead. Now, you know, the, the upshot there is, I think the message is really quite clear. Uh, if this Omicron variant is going to be very problematic for the unvaccinated. And if, as the, the results are starting to show us, that a fully vaccinated person, while they may get sick, they will most likely avoid hospitalization and very likely avoid dying from COVID-19 uh, or its complications because the vaccines do what they are supposed to do. And if you think about it, um, you know, there are loads of people out there who have gotten flu vaccinations and still end up getting sick, even getting the flu. But what we find, and I, I can say this from my own personal experience, uh, I've received the flu vaccination and I have gotten the flu, but it's been very mild. It's, you know, sniffles, a headache, you know, uh, some sneezing, a little coughing. That's it. Three days. I'm, I'm, I'm back, you know, and if, if that's what the future with COVID is going to look like uh, compared to what we've seen over the last two years, I think that is a, a, pretty, a pretty positive outlook and, and something that we should take to heart and realize and, and let the people who are resisting the vaccine know, you know, understand you know, you're looking at the difference between spending, you know, weeks in a hospital and possibly dying 
to you know being uncomfortable at home for three days with a really bad uh, head cold or flu-like cold uh, and then returning to normal uh, with the added value of having both the vac the the vaccinated uh, protections as well as the antibody protections that coming through an infection of COVID will give you. So, you know, just another uh, case uh, in favor of, you know, getting fully vaccinated. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll keep preaching the message. Let me know what you think about that. If you have comments, uh, if you have questions, if you have objections, send an email, firedupradio at yahoo.com. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, let's, you know, let's have that dialogue. All right. So we'll, uh, we'll keep you posted on what's happening with COVID and with the Omicron variant. Uh, now let's, um, we'll switch over and we'll get into a little more of what's going on in the political world. Uh, so strap in cause we're about to enter the political danger zone. So let's, let's get off into the the news um let's uh let's talk a little bit and i'm going to introduce uh this first segment uh we'll talk you know uh, i'll give you the the front end and then we'll we'll come back after a quick break and talk about it in more detail uh but a an article came out of the associated press uh on december 12th and uh basically this one is reporting uh that governor gavin newsom of california is pledging to empower private citizens to in, to enforce a ban on the manufacture and sale of assault weapons in the state of California. And he's going to use the mechanism and authority that conservative lawmakers in Texas uh, use or are using to outlaw most abortions in that state uh, you know, beyond the six-week threshold and so forth. Um, you know, and if you recall, when we talked about the Texas uh, abortion law in previous shows, um, I did bring out that we would see this type of approach used on a range of additional conservative uh, subjects going forward. And here we have uh, one of the first ones, um, although it's not a conservative uh, uh, subject because by and large most conservatives and again air quotes around that um, actually are opposed to restrictions on uh, guns and, and gun related issues uh, in most of the states in the country uh, this is a democratic uh, initiative but it is using the conservative playbook that was used in Texas for the abortion ban that uh, we've talked about numerous times and is, you know, being debated and will be fought in the courts with no doubt uh, pretty soon. Uh, so just by a little bit of history, um, California banned the manufacture and sale of assault-style assault weapons uh, many years ago, decades ago. Um, that that ban precluded b making or selling uh, assault style weapons and and in some cases the accessories that go along with it uh, bump stocks you know 
large ma- at, at large scale magazines and and so forth. Well, a federal judge overturned that ban back in June, ruling it was unconstitutional and which, you know, of course immediately drew the ire of the state's democratic leaders uh, by, as the judge put in, in his argument for, over, for overturning the ban, he said that uh, compared an AR-15 rifle to a Swiss army knife uh, as, quote, good for both home and battle. And, you know, the, while the ban is still in a place, while the appeal process is going forward, uh, you can see here with this statement, again, where this judge is comparing an, an automatic rifle with a Swiss Army knife um, as, as a good home uh, tool as well as a good tool for battle. Um, you, can make that, you can make of that as, as you may. I personally um, just kind of have to give that the side eye saying, you know, the last time that I couldn't find a can opener, it didn't occur to me to go into my gun locker and, and pull out my AR-15 in order to open up a can of beans for dinner. But, you know, y- you get the idea. Um, so, as I said earlier, and, I, and we'll, we'll talk about this when we, we come back after, after the break, uh, the California Democratic uh, Legislature uh, and the Democratic Attorney General uh, want to pass a law that would let private citizens sue to enforce California's ban on assault weapons. Um, Newsom, Governor Newsom has said people who sue could win up to $10,000 per violation plus other costs and attorney's fees against, quote, anyone who manufactures, distributes, or sells an assault weapon in California. Uh, you know, Newsom justifies this by saying that if the if the most efficient way to keep these devastating weapons off our streets is to add the threat of pi- private lawsuits, we should do just that. So, you know, a- as I said, and you know, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break, uh, uh, segment break here, and when we come back, we're gonna dig into this a little bit and uh, talk about uh, what this means in terms of not only the California. Uh, assault weapons situation and the the abortion battle in Texas, but uh, I want to dive in a little bit and kind of talk about whether this is going to become the new weapon of choice in the battle between uh, so-called conservative and so-called liberal uh, policies in this country. Uh, you're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the short break. And we're back, continuing our discussion on the uh, law proposed by California Governor Gavin Newsom 
to uh, allow for individual citizens uh, to sue anyone with regard to the manufacture, uh, sale, or distribution of assault-style weapons in the state of California. This law, as we were talking about, is modeled on the law in Texas that seeks to uh, set a limit on abortions in that state and allows for private citizens to sue anyone who aids or abets in a, a woman having an abortion beyond six weeks in that state. Uh, we've talked about that uh, in past episodes. Uh, you need only go back to our archive and go back to the uh, episodes in the high end of the 90s that you'll see or, or be able to hear those. Um, one of the things you know with this law that Governor Newsom is proposing is obviously it's going to have to go through the state legislature before it can become a law. Uh, and as of uh, today, with you know, the recording of this show, California's legislature is not in session right now, uh, although it's scheduled to reconvene in January. Uh, it should be noted that uh, it normally takes, according to the information I've, I've received, it normally takes about eight months for a new bill to make it through the uh, legislative process uh, again, and that's that's barring anything uh, of a special circumstance nature or emergency um, uh, requirement or so forth. Um, and obviously, uh, this this ban is not going to go through uncontested. Uh, already, uh, Republican state senators such as Brian Dahl, uh, a Republican state senator from Bieber, California, uh, would oppose the plan. But, you know, they're, they're saying that California's Democratic-dominated state legislature said that the proposal uh, would likely pass. Uh, he, is, he has categorized the proposal as mostly a stunt for Newsom uh, to uh, win back favor with his progressive base of voters. Uh, you know, and even went so far as to say it is part of a setup for a possible run by Newsom for president uh, in the future. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Senator Dahl is quoted as saying is the right to bear arms is different than the right to have an abortion. The right to have an abortion is not a constitutional amendment. So I think he's way off base, uh, Dahl said. I think he's just using it as an opportunity, quote, to grandstand. Um, you know, and you know, the, the argument can be made that, yes, the, the Second Amendment addresses uh, the right of citizens to keep and bear arms. Um, there is no equivalent amendment in the Constitution that addresses you know, the, uh, a woman's right uh, to an abortion, even though there is uh, law on the books, uh, there is precedent and in, in what is known as uh, stare decisis or decided law that uh, Roe v. Wade and um, you know, bills that have come up to support Roe v. Wade, like Casey, uh, give the legal right to an abortion uh, to women in, in this country uh, at a federal level even though many states have enacted 
uh, restrictions, you know, as we've talked about over the course of many, many shows uh, on this program. So, you know, I think we are also going to have similar discussions as this uh, debate over automatic weapons in California uh, begins to uh, pan itself out and we see what exactly the the proposal is, what the restrictions or what the rules would be, and so on and so forth. But either way, it raises some very, very interesting questions uh, that uh, we are going to see debated uh, not only along the lines of the, the potential ban on assault-style weapons uh, in California and perhaps, if successful, in other places, time will tell, but also, as we've talked about on this show, the application of this uh, people's court or people's uh, exercise of the citizens' arrest process and laws revolving around that uh, to enforce a, a uh, law required by one portion of the, the state government or another. Uh, the interesting thing here is that it bypasses just about all intervention by the uh, federal court system. Normally, when a, a law is challenged, uh, it is challenged with the naming of an individual, uh, an organization, uh, and or you know, a, a group of individuals. For example, uh, normally if someone were going to challenge a, the abortion law, they would name in their, their suit to challenge it, they would name the Secretary of State or the government, uh, the governor rather, or, or some state official as part of that lawsuit. The Texas law uh, eliminates that because it is purely a citizen action. It is a, a, a private lawsuit essentially that does not involve the government. Therefore, it circumvents uh, any rules or laws uh, that the federal government has in place uh, to regulate the administration of a policy. So under this, this law in Texas, uh, it basically circumvents uh, the requirements of Roe versus Wade uh, as supported by the requirements of Casey versus Planned Parenthood uh, and, you know, purely leaves it in the purview of the civilian court. So as we now look in California, as this uh, assault weapons uh, legislation moves forward, uh, we will likely see again that there will be lawsuits, but they will not be lawsuits against uh, the state government in California or Gavin Newsom in particular uh, and, and so forth, simply because they are essentially one citizen suing another citizen. So the, the state, you know, to, to coin a phrase, doesn't have a nickel in the fight because it is not a, a suit against a government entity. Uh, so that will be interesting to see how this fleshes itself out, how it plays out, and what impact it's going to have on other areas of the law. Uh, that you know we we have struggled with controversial uh, decisions on in the past, 
you know, and, and you know, voting rights comes to mind, um, you know, uh, equal, uh, equal representation, uh, you know, uh, equal pay is another good example. All of these contentious issues are ones that may end up uh, having this civilian, uh, this civilian lawsuit approach taken. And it will be interesting to see what this means for the application of civil law in this country uh, when it, it essentially circumvents the governmental role in managing this law by moving the complainants to the civilian ranks rather than uh, civilian versus you know, government entity or one government entity or non-governmental uh, organization against another, et cetera, et cetera. So we will keep track on this one and we will let you know how it proceeds and uh, we'll keep you posted. All right, uh, let's take our mid-show break. Uh, you're listening to WJMSRadio.com. This is the show Fired Up right here every Monday where we talk about the political uh machine going on, what it means for you, what it means for me. So we're going to take a quick break and I'm going to talk a little bit in the break about some exciting things coming to the Fired Up show uh, as we round down or wind down the year 2021 and move into 2022. Uh, we've got some exciting things that uh, we're working on and hopefully you will, you will feel the same way. As always, if you have questions or comments about the show, uh, we ask and invite you to communicate with us using our email address at firedupradio at yahoo.com. So send your comments, uh, praise, complaints, uh, what your thoughts are, uh, any uh, other information you want, and uh, let's have a dialogue on it. All right, we'll pick it up right after the break right here on WJMSRadio.com. Things are getting intense, using up my sixth sense. Thought you had us figured, I can't use me at your expense. They be on that pretense, we be on some defense. Left you in the past tense, you could keep your two cents. I don't wanna be another target on a headless. All my people running around the city like some misfits. So I'm steady praying for my brothers like a wish list. Can I trust a soul? They gon' turn on you the quickest. Them is so much going on in this world we call our home. They've been looting and protesting, trying to get it for our home. Ain't nobody got us like we got us. Streets is in a frenzy, you see the riots. Stand up for a cause, or you die for one of yours. Ain't no universal laws, they just want to sabotage. Rolling with my entourage, and they tell us be safe. But they got our hands behind us while we down up on our face. It don't make no sense, no. It felt like a death, no. How we supposed to raise our sons, how we supposed to get through. Feeling really stressful, years of being dreadful. How could we be careful when we ain't really careful? Therefore, all the youths need a good mentor, yes, Lord. All the years, this we in daughters, no cure. All the cops screaming, f 10 for what for? Government always trying to send, so we at war. Yeah, we black, but we really called Moors, born poor. All we care about is Jordan Concords, looking stars. Why you taking things that's not yours? All boy, that ain't no way yet on the George Floyd. Stay on point. Half America is really unemployed. We annoyed, killing people. It's a state of paranoia, can't 
these businesses burned down and destroyed. No insurance. Damn. Think my people kind of missing what's important. Uh -huh. Yeah, standing for your rights. Yeah, we putting up a fight. They don't want us out at night, so they gave us curfew. It's like jumping out the plane with no parachute don't shoot hands up but they still gonna do it here we know and probably like man what y'all doing need to come together all of us and start a revolution yeah discover more solutions overthrow the constitution stop the loot and stop the shooting we've been living in confusion i'm getting intense losing up my sixth sense thought you had us figured i can't use me at your expense they be on that pretense we be on some defense if you in the past tense you could keep your two cents i don't Another target on a headless. All my people running around the city like some misfits. So I'm steady praying for my brothers like a wish list. Can I trust a soul? They gon' turn on you the quickest. And we're back. Welcome back to Fire It Up. All right, uh, let's get back into our discussion for uh, this Monday, this this today. And uh, wanted to retouch on a subject that I know I've been talking about uh, over the course of the year, over the course of, of more than a year. Uh, the election in Georgia, which created just a shockwave of uh, reaction around not only the country, but the world, where even in the face of you know restrictions and uh, voter suppression tactics and and disenfranchisement uh, strategies that were put in place uh, by the Republican-led government of the state of Georgia, uh, the electorate came through and actually uh, elected two Democratic senators, giving control of the Senate to the Democratic Party here in this country and essentially turned uh, the state of Georgia from reddish to more blue-ish, um, you know, and, you know, powered. It was part of the effort that uh, put Joe Biden over the top to become president of the United States in 2020. Uh, but, and there, there is a huge comma, but that we're going to talk about right here, uh, since that uh, result has been put into the books, uh, the Republican legislature, the Republican Party uh, has been moving forward with sweeping changes um, to the political structure. That is how elections are handled, how they're managed, who is in control of them and what uh, elements uh can be addressed by the Republican Party uh, going forward. And really, they have focused their efforts on uh, four of the largest counties uh, in Georgia, uh, all of which happen to be uh, in and around the Atlanta area, Metro Atlanta. And those are Fulton, Gwinnett, Cobb, and DeKalb. Uh, you'll probably want to make note of these counties. We're going to be hearing about them and talking about them and looking at them quite a bit as we move through the year heading toward the, uh, 
the midterms in 2022 and then again in 2024 as we look at the next national cycle uh, of elections. Uh, one of the things that's going to play heavily into it is the uh, redrawn congressional maps which have been brought out um, and, and packaged up for the governor's signature. Uh, governor Kemp is expected to sign those uh, soon. Uh, no specific date has been announced, but the anticipation is that that will occur soon. And what's going to happen, in, and you should take note of this as well, because you'll see this in many states around the country, is certain districts, and they, they are not just Democratic districts that you will see this occur in, because Democrats control the process in, in several states around the country as well, and they're doing the same thing. But here's, here's the way the game is played. You have a hem heavily uh, uh, populated county of one party or another. Let's say for sake of argument, let's keep it discussing about Georgia. And let's say we're talking about a heavily Democratic county, such as Cobb County in, in Georgia. Um, what will happen and what you will see these redistricting committees do is they will divide up this county and allocate portions of it to a neighboring uh, county where there is a Republican presence, uh, effectively diluting the strength of a, a Democratic or a single party block of votes in that county. This is the way this, this game gets played. Uh, you have a, a, a county or you have a, yeah, or, or district that is heavily uh, locked with one party over the other uh, and what will happen is the redistricting committees will divide that county up and allocate portions of it to neighboring counties where the the other party uh, may have uh, you know more votes and, and so forth essentially they eliminate um, one uh, of the party strongholds and they are going to change that in in the in the the sense of Cobb County they're changing that to become four congressional districts out of one uh, and those four districts are going to be less uh, favorable to Democratic candidates and even in this case will force two Democratic representatives to run against each other so you know, what we're seeing here is the idea of, you know, essentially uh, setting just another obstacle of uh, voter disenfranchisement, uh, vote suppression, and, and so forth in place uh, using the laws that are on the books to do it. Uh, this is not an, an illegal process. It is a process that is well-defined, has been well uh, defined for many years and has been used frequently uh, over the years by both parties uh, against the other. Uh, for example, uh, as we talk about Georgia, uh, last year Democrats flipped the majority of Gwinnett County offices, capturing control of the county commission and the school board while winning the county sheriff and district attorney's offices. All of the leadership posts in 
those offices and boards are now occupied by black politicians. However, according to this article from uh, Politico, Republicans in the state Senate set in motion legislation that could roll back those gains by doubling the number of mem members on the county commission and making the school board nonpartisan. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is they are, are taking a, a board uh, or the, the county commission in this case, which right now is overwhelmingly democratic and uh, minority uh, to wit African-American, and they're going to expand the number of positions on the commission so that they can, in fact, in effect, get more Republicans elected or appointed to the board to dilute the authority of the existing board. Uh, basically, you know, I guess the, the analogy would be through the discussions we've seen in terms of uh, how the Supreme Court in this country might be addressed uh, by the Democrats. You know, court packing, this would be commission packing. Essentially, weakening the position of the majority controlling interest presently on the board by expanding the number, making a new uh, number of minimums for quorums and for you know majority votes and so forth that effectively dilutes the presence of those uh, existing members and you know they're they're seeing this trend popping up not just in Georgia and in many places in Georgia but you know the news is reporting and articles have come out about seeing this in areas of Texas areas of Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, Arizona, you know, and, and all over areas of the country as one of the tactics that the uh, conservative slash Republican Party uh, in, in certain states is using to retain control, retain power, um, and, you know, minimize the gains that have been made by the so-called liberal or, or democratic uh, uh, politicians in those states. Now, again, Democrats, where they control, are doing the same thing. They're, they're both sides in, in their areas, in their backyards. Both sides are playing the same game. And the problem that happens with that is, in effect, nothing ends up getting Done. Nothing ends up getting accomplished because we are spending our time, our energy, and our money on these infighting battles, these uh, these ideological uh, back and forths, and the the key work that needs to be done by our elected officials ends up taking second stage to these battles for primary control of these committees, commissions, elected offices, state houses, and legislatures, and so forth. So, you know, this is, this is what we talk about on this show as, you know, being a reason why we need to be engaged, informed, educated, and learned about how the system is working, uh, how the mechanism of, you know, state government, local government works. You know, as much as we talk about the, the federal level 
uh, governmental process. And that's all well and good. The, the federal government has a lot of power and does a lot of things. But as I've said many times on this show, the local legislative uh, process, your local elected officials, your mayors, your city councils, your school boards, your sheriff's departments, your, your county corrections departments, your county boards, these are the, the real points of power in our country. Uh, we are a country where the majority of the actual governing power isn't in, at the federal level. It's at the state level. The states control the voting process. The states control the distribution of monies uh, from, collected from taxes. The states control the school boards. The states control the health systems and the emergency response systems. All of the key points of infrastructure that intersect with our daily lives are not run day to day by the federal government. They are run day to day by state and local elected or appointed officials. And the more that we are engaged with those people at the, the state and local level, the better our influence uh, will be when we get to the federal level uh, because the power for the federal government is derived from the power of the state governments. You need only look at the Constitution of the United States and then go look at your state constitution, both of which are available online. You can go to the web, go to you know, whatever your state name is, .gov, and uh, search for you know, state constitution, and it will be there ready and available for you to review and read and learn. And here, here's the thing. And if there's a takeaway from all of this, from what I've just been talking about for the last few minutes, um, that I would hope each and every one of you would take away, would learn from this. Here's the thing. We oftentimes focus on the actions and outcomes uh, and you know, battles and all of the things that go on in Washington, D.C., and, you know, while those are important, while it does impact the overall direction that our country as a whole moves in, the more we focus on what happens in Washington, D.C., the less we are focused on what happens in, you know, your state capital or your city and town or your county seat. And as I've said, that's where the real rubber meets the real road. The federal government doesn't run your local school system. The federal government doesn't run your local hospital systems or your local fire and emergency systems. Do they set some, some boundary rules and regulations in those areas? Absolutely. But day to day, those agencies, those entities are run by locally positioned people, either locally elected by you, the citizens, or locally appointed by people that you, the citizens, elected, i.e. your governor, your state legislator, your county boards, etc. 
You vote to put those people in office, and they, in fact, turn around and appoint the people who do the day-to-day work of making your school system work or making sure that your roads are plowed in, in and after a snowstorm or making sure that your police department is adequately funded and supported, etc., etc. So, you know, while, as I've said, it is important for us to be mindful of what goes on in Washington, D.C., we cannot afford to take our eye off of what is happening it, in our local states, in our local cities and towns and communities and counties, etc. Uh, these are the important places where serious work that impacts our lives every day gets done. And we need to make sure that they, that these people, our elected officials at this level, are hearing from us on a regular and routine basis. So that, that's where uh, this is going. That's where we've got to be more focused as we you know, wind our way toward the midterms in 2022. There will be a lot of local level elections that are going to occur. We need to pay attention to those. We need to get engaged with those. Uh, If there are candidates that we believe in, we need to support those candidates. We need to get out and campaign for those candidates that think as we think uh, and that carry the ideas that we believe in uh, forward to get those into the system. So that's our call to action for that level. And, you know, just be aware of what's going on at your state level. As it said in the uh, article that I've been referencing, uh, and this is a quote from that article in Politico, uh, the practical effect of these changes that are going on in Georgia would be to dilute democratic power at the moment the party has taken control. Even with newly installed democratic majorities on both boards, their decisions will require buy-in from new members who would likely represent largely white and Republican areas if the number of seats on these commissions were expanded. So, you know, what is happening and something that we will see, you mark my words, you will see this occur in other states around the country, is that these panels will be expanded and the influence and and effect of these, uh, you know, Democratic majorities where that's the issue or these Republican majorities where Democrats control uh, will be diminished. And, you know, as a result, uh, things that may not be uh, in line with the majority of people that reside in that jurisdiction will, in fact, become the law of the land in those jurisdictions because of who's sitting on those commission panels. So, you know, keep your eye out, keep your ear out stay informed. And that seems like a a good segue into our fourth story. Uh, And, you know, what this one involves, uh, as I said, segues out of the Georgia situation somewhat. Uh, What we have is a news article that came out of Politico uh, over the weekend that said um, that the Senate has passed a one-time loophole on Thursday to empower Democrats to raise the debt limit on their own, a major step toward warding off a mid-December economic fallout. So what that means is if nothing had been done, uh, the U.S. would have essentially 
run out of the money needed to pay our already existing bills, to pay the debt that we already have created. Put another way, it is it would be the equivalent of your bank account running out of the money you need to pay your mortgage, your car payment, your credit cards, your food bill, your utility bills, to pay all of the, the, the bills uh, uh, as part of your existence. So the argument that's been going on over the past uh, six months, or actually over the past decade, uh, has been you know, these, these continuing resolutions, or CRs, as you'll hear them described, uh, which basically put a little bit of money in the kitty to pay the bills for a period of time, moving it down, you know, downstream uh, so that, you know, the thinking is that when they take it back up again in three months or six months, they'll all be in a better mood or whatever and can work in, a, in you know, some level of a bipartisan fashion to put uh, a, a legislation in place that, takes care of paying the the debts of the United States of America. Uh, that has not that has not worked out smoothly in a very long time. Um, as I think back in, in my lifetime, um, I think there has been one time since you know since I was born since the 50s that the United States has had, a law on the books that paid its debts as it went so that debt ceiling wasn't an issue. But again, back then, uh, you know, the debt ceiling was in tens of millions of dollars as opposed to this uh, current version of the bill, which would set the debt ceiling at $30 trillion. The mere fact that this is an issue uh, in and of itself is a subject for discussion. Uh, but the, the real deal is the debt limit is for expenses that we have already accrued. It is not about uh, paying down future debt that's going to be incurred. Uh, that will be dealt with with future debt ceiling legislation, etc. But, you know, oftentimes people will get confused and think that when the the congressional leadership and the president and these people are talking about, um, you know, raising the debt limit, it is raising uh, the amount of money that we can spend on things tomorrow and beyond. When it really is about raising the limit on the funds that we need in the checking account, if you want to think of it that way, to pay are existing bills. So, you know, the, the, the money's already been borrowed and spent. This is what we have to pay in order to pay back those loans. Um, but what's, what's interesting about this is that in, for this one single time, the bill that has been uh, crafted by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer with the concurrence of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, is unique because there has been such a, a heated and pointed debate over the debt ceiling, over finding some kind of bipartisan way to address it, 
Uh, and, you know, there, there's been discussions around uh, dealing with the filibuster and trying to find a bipartisan solution. What ended up being agreed to with this legislation was that the Republicans agreed to let the Democrats solve the problem this one time. So rather than try and, and pull together a bipartisan coalition, the Republicans have stipulated that they are okay with the Democrats uh, voting on and, and taking care of this debt ceiling uh, within their own uh, party voting process. So by doing that, it does two things. One, it allows for the measure to go forward in a manner that doesn't uh, risk the United States government defaulting on its credit. And two, it also eliminates the need for it to be a 60 vote threshold in that it can be done with a simple majority. That is 51 votes will, um, will uh, pass the, the debt ceiling limit raising. So, you know, that in itself, you know, is a, a singular moment that is worth looking at and, and thinking about and studying a little bit. So the idea is that in this one specific case, the Senate agreed to open a window uh, of possibility in the filibuster uh, so that it's not necessary in this particular case uh, to solve this very important and very critical financial issue for the United States of America. Uh, so, you know, kudos to, to the Senate for, for making this happen. Um, it would be interesting to see if there are other things that the two halves of the Senate could come together and resolve uh, in similar fashion. And maybe what we'll see going down the road is that this process will serve as some kind of roadmap or will serve as at least uh, a, an example that can be held up to say, see, on this occasion, when we needed to get this done, when it was important to do so, this was how we solved the problem. Why can't we do this again with, you know, fill in the blank with other critical uh, United States problem that needs to be addressed by the full Senate? So... Uh, it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, it is worth digging into. The article I was reading is in Politico, and it came out on the 9th. There are plenty of other articles and news sources that were talking about this. It is worth a read to, to see how this agreement was arrived at, to see what both sides are saying, and perhaps to use that in your conversations with your elected officials uh, in, in kind of a, see, you did it here, why can't you do it there kind of conversation. Part of what, as we always say on this show, digging wider, digging deeper, being informed, educated, and active. So reach out to your, to your elected officials. Uh, kudos to them, especially if your elected officials are Republicans. Give them some credit on you know working this solution let them know that you approve of it 
and perhaps that will work so that we can see more of these occur over time. So hopefully on that good note, we're going to end our show for today. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. As always, I appreciate your tuning in. Uh, I hope that uh, you will stay uh, tuned in and, and keyed in to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. We have some exciting things coming in the new year, and please, you will, you will not regret um, not, not tuning in to, did I do that right? You will not regret tuning in to WJMS Radio uh, as we go into 2022. So in, in all of that, please, everybody, stay safe, get vaccinated, and I look forward to talking to all of you again in seven days. Started yesterday, and we're already late.